Welcome everybody. Um, it's uh, such a pleasure to have to, to have you with us, and it's actually such a pleasure to be here. Just get started by uh, wishing all our dads out there a happy Father's Day. And uh, yeah. Um, and if you haven't wished your dad a happy Father's Day yet, if they're not here, please please do so. Um, I think I missed one. Uh, one year calling my dad and wishing him a happy Father's Day, and I don't think he ever said anything to me, but uh, I sure felt it. So uh, now um, I call I call my reader, and I think I do more for myself than I do it for him. I think it's an opportunity for me to reflect on all of the things, um, all, all the things that he has done for me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto the ages of all ages, Amen. Last week, we got, we were talking about how Jesus reduced down 613 Old Testament commandments to just two when they were talking to him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and your neighbor as yourself. And just the night right before his crucifixion, he reduces it down to one for his disciples in an intimate gathering with them. He boils it down to this one thing, love one another as I have loved you. And this becomes this becomes the only thing that we need to do. And we, we really like totally all, you know, sunk our, 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 you know, our teeth deep into last week, that it's not about rules, that Jesus really said, forget the rules and make it about relationship. It's a relationship that you have with God. It's a relationship that you have with others. And that's what matters. Now, the kicker of this question, which we kind of left off, off with, is if, it's, if Jesus is telling us to love others as I have loved you, well, how much is that? And we alluded to it a little bit last week, but it's time for us to dive way deeper into that question and to be able to, you know, put some kind of finite boundaries onto the infinite love of God. I know that sounds like it doesn't make sense, but if God's love is infinite, okay, his love is infinite. How much of it can you see in one glance? For example, the horizon is infinite. Okay, it goes from it goes from way, way, way over there to way, way, way over there, far beyond your eye can see. But if you could see, uh, you know, I don't know, the CN Tower at one end and some other landmark at the other, and that was the boundary of how far your eye could see. That's the portion of the horizon that you can see. So each one of us has a finite ability to perceive or to enjoy or to relate to the infinite love of God. And that that amount that you can actually, you know, grasp, that you can actually relate to, actually can change and grow over time. And we're going to be talking about how can you, how can you, can you find the boundaries of the love of God which you have experienced. That is what we're setting out to, to, to do today, right? Because the question is no longer, what do I have to do to please a capricious God, what do I have to do to please a God who has 613 likes and don't likes? The, the question has become now, what does love require of me? If I love my brother, my sister, 
which is the only way for me to love my God. What does that mean? How does that play out in this situation, in this in this conversation, in this conflict, in this moment? How does that how does that play out? Now, I got a few comments last week that if we say that as is the new standard, which is kind of like the party line of this whole series, you know, it kind of sets the bar really, really high. And is the bar too high? You know, it sets a new standard for us. And is that bar too high? Now, for those who are asking that question, and I ask that question all the time, and all the time I turn to God and I tell him, God, I can't do this, right? This is too difficult for me. The bar is is too high. I want to share, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a short conversation I had with my spiritual father about about this. When I told my spiritual father, I think the bar is just too high. He said to me, "You know what that means? That means that God believes in you more than you believe in yourself." And I told him, "Huh?" My spiritual father was well known for saying things that no one understood. But I was one of those few people who would not let him out of my grasp until he explained to us, what do you mean? He says, well, if God is asking you to do something, it would be unfair, it would be unjust. In fact, you could even say it would be cruel if he was asking you to do something that you cannot do. So he obviously believes that you are able to do what he is asking you to do. He has given you the means to do it. But you don't think so, and that's why you think the bar is too high. And so the summary is, God probably believes in you and me more than we believe in ourselves sometimes. And that's a problem. I'll tell you why that's a problem. This is all the introduction to our, to our talk for today, right? But just to kind of get this, get, get this is the bar too high question out of the way. It's a bit of a problem because, do you remember when uh, Moses brings the people of Israel out of Egypt, right? You know, God says to Moses, let my, you know, go tell, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He goes and tells Pharaoh, let my people go like 10 times. And finally, they go and they go out. And they, they, then they journey for just under two months, 40 some days actually. And they find themselves at the gates of the promised land, a place called Canaan. And for historical reasons, this was the perfect time for them to enter Canaan. It was, the timing was just perfect. From a military perspective, the military had fled. The whole land was without defense. They sent spies into Canaan. And the spies go in and they come back um, and they're carrying fruit. And they show the fruit to the people. And they say, it is a good land the Lord has prepared for us. Indeed, indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey. And it's very fruitful. Everywhere you turn, something is growing. But the people there, oh my God, they are giants. They will eat us alive. And they will not only kill us, they will kill us, and they will kill our women, and they will kill, they will kill our children. They said... 12 spies, 10 of them come back with this bad report. The other two say it is a good land. God will prosper us. God will strengthen us and, we, and let us go. Moses tells the people, come on, let's go. And the people say, no, 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 no. 10 of the spies said this ain't no work. They don't believe. And so God says, fine, you don't believe? You'll spend, none of you will enter the promised land except Joshua and Caleb who said, 
who said that, who believed in me, that I would give it to them. We wandered around for 40 years in the desert until everybody from that first generation had, had, had died, and then they entered the promised land. George, uh, George Bernard Shaw, famous uh, Irish writer and Nobel uh, Literature uh, uh, Prize winner, was asked at the end of his life, Mr. Shaw asked a reporter, if you could live your life over and be anyone you've ever known or any person in history, who would you be? He would choose, replied Shaw, to be the man George Bernard Shaw could have been but never was. Deion Sanders, one of the only people to show up both in the Super Bowl and a major uh, 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 league uh, uh, ball series, baseball world series, calls it, says this, I call them items. If I'd done this, I'd be making three million today. If I'd have practiced a little harder, I'd be a superstar. They were as fast as me when we were kids. But instead of working their, to their dreams, they chose drugs and a life of street corners. When I was young, I had to practice. My friends who didn't went straight to the streets and never left. That moment after school is the moment we need to grab. We don't need any more items. All of us can think of item moments. If I would have done this, I would have, I'd have done that. I would have gotten here. The problem, the problem with looking at the bar and saying it's too high, is selling ourselves short, is allowing ourselves to give in to discouragement before we've even started. God is calling you and me today to believe that the person who is telling you to love one another as I have loved you, to set the standard higher, to set the standard, I promise you, I know this sounds crazy, as high as it is for Christ himself, is the Good Shepherd. You see, there's, there's, there's a lie that's gone out, a, a rumor that's gone out about Jesus and about his teachings, that he's doing this because he wants something from you. You see, this is why Jesus is referred to as the Good Shepherd, because he doesn't want anything from his sheep other than their well-being. Any, any shepherd out there, okay, you, you have your career, you're, 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 you're an engineer, you're a teacher, you're a lawyer, you're retired, whatever, you decide you want to start a new career. I think I'm going to become a shepherd, right? So what is that? You're starting a business, a business in which you will care for sheep. And why do you care for sheep? Because they are your business. And what happens if the sheep die? Well, that's your asset. That's your investment. You bought these sheep for money, and you're hoping to make money with them, right? How are you going to make money with them? You're going to sell wool, you're going to sell milk, you're going to, God forbid, sell meat. You know what I mean, right? Anybody here like lamb? I love lamb, right? Um, my uh, eldest daughter's favorite stuffed animal is this little stuffed sheep. His name is Sheepy. So every time I roast a lamb, I pull it out of the oven and I go, Sheepy. <laughs> she hasn't caught on yet, but when she does, we probably won't be allowed to eat lamb in our household anymore, right? Like, think about it. Any shepherd cares for the sheep. If one of them gets sick, he will take care of him. He will drive him over to the vet. He will race to get him better. Why? Because that thing is an asset. It's an investment. The good shepherd doesn't look at you and me as an asset or an investment. The good shepherd doesn't want to take something from you. He wants to bestow something upon you. God doesn't want something from you. 
He wants something for you. God has set the bar high so that you could enjoy, live, experience the kingdom of heaven here on earth. But as long as I'm trying to live by earthly standards, I will never experience the kingdom of heaven. So he tells us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And we kind of can see a bit of like a, a seesaw, you know, with the word as in between, right? So love one another is what we have to do. And as I have loved you is what he's done. Now, the take-home message for today is all the power to be able to do this is on the other side of the house. You see, you and I, when we hear this, we're like, okay, you know, okay, John, what's my assignment? What do I have to do? Okay, love one another. That's what I gotta do. So that's what, you know, we focus, we hone in, right? Okay, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna love, I'm gonna love one another, right? But if you do that, that's like that's like saying, okay, please drive this car across town. Don't forget you'll need to fill up gas. That's like taking off with the car without filling up the gas. The gas is here. It's all the power, all the power to drive this is over here. So all of our energy and all of our focus and all of our attention always needs to be on this side of the ass. We hear love one another as I have loved you, and we just register love one another, which is good because that's what we've been asked to do. So don't let that out of your sight. But the power to do it, the energy, the focus, where our focus should be should probably be on this side because that's what's going to power us to do it. And to get a better grasp of this, we're going to take one example of another as that Jesus says. So Jesus is with his disciples. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and all this stuff. And then one of the, one of the disciples um, you know, comes and asks him, Peter comes and asks him, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Because Jesus, right before that, he tells him what to do with a brother who is sinning. Okay, take him to the church, you know, bring another witness, this, that, bring him to the church. He gives them some very specific instructions. Now, keep in mind, St. Peter's biological brother is Andrew, and he's in the circle, right? So, it's like St. Peter is saying, so how often should I forgive St. Andrew over there, right? <laughs> he was probably thinking of other four-letter words that, other than saints. For Andrew, right? Over there, right? Seven times, he says to Jesus, Jesus answers him, and he says to him, not seven times, seven times, seventy times. So, you know, you all kind of like pass grade four math, so you're like doing seventy times seven, that's 490 times in a day. Wow, that is a lot of forgiveness all in one day, right? So to you, you're saying seven times seventy, that is a lot of times to forgive somebody all in one day. Now to the apostles, keep in mind, these guys were, most of them were like fishermen. Other than Judas, most of them were like, had a very little education. Their mathematical table, multiplication table, did not go to 70. You know what I mean? So the, asking them that would be like me asking you to multiply the light of speed by pi. You know what I mean? And you're like, I don't know what it is, but it's a big, big number. You know? Right? They didn't know. To them, it was like Jesus was saying, forgive him infinitely. Infinitely. Jesus probably could see, I'm imagining like the, you know, the silence among his disciples, the looks between Peter and Andrew. He says, let me tell you a story. 
There was a master who uh, realized there was some funny business going on amongst his servants. So he says, let's look at how much we've lent all of our servants. So he looks at the books and he finds one guy who owed 10,000 talents. Now a talent was basically the weight of an average adult. So when it says 10,000 talents, it's probably 10,000 talents of silver, of sterling silver. It could have been of gold, but then, 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 then it should be ridiculous. But so he, this guy owned, this guy owed 10,000, the weight of a human being, like 70 kilos, of sterling, solid sterling silver. So he calls, the, he calls the servant in and he tells him, this is what you owe, pay up. And he says, uh, uh, master, this is the hilarious part. He says, master, please be patient with me and I will pay all, right? We'll talk about why that's absolutely hilarious in a moment. And the master sees the ridiculousness of this conversation. He says, I'm gonna sell you, I'm gonna sell your wife, I'm gonna sell your children into slavery, and I'm gonna take all the money, I'm gonna take all that you're worth, I'll sell all your belongings to pay your debt. And then the master realizes, like, hold on a second, like, for the amount of money this guy owes, if I sell him into slavery, I basically completely destroy his life and his family's lives, I'm gonna have paid like 0.001% of the debt. So that's it. he kind of has a deep thought moment and he says, I forgive you. What? I forgive you. I forgive you the debt. Scratch it out. You know, forgiven in full. They record that in the book, they flip the page. Next, they call the next person. Servant goes out and he realizes like he doesn't have a penny to his name, he lives paycheck by paycheck, and he remembers there's another servant who owed him like the equivalent of like a hundred dollars. So he goes and he finds him and says, Hey, you owe me a hundred dollars. He says, Yeah, yeah, I know. Get, you know, get my get my paycheck at you know at the end of next week. I'll I'll pay you. I'll pay everything. Don't worry about it. He says no. Pay me now. He says well I, I can't. I mean, like I have nothing. But at the end of next week I'll pay you. He says, no, pay me now. Now now. Pay me now. So he says if you don't pay me, he learned what to say from the master. Right? I'm gonna sell you into slavery. I'm gonna sell your wife. I'm gonna sell your kids. I'm gonna sell all your belongings until you pay up. Right? And, and the, 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 the servant's like, okay, 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 I promise I'll pay you, I promise I'll pay you. He doesn't know where he's going to get the money from, but I promise I'll pay you. And he runs for his life. Who gets wind of this? The rest of the servants. Who do they tell? The master. They tell the master, the master is fuming. He pulls the first servant into his office, and he says to him, how much did you owe? 10,000 talents. But what did I do? I forgave you. What did you do to your neighbor? And he throws him in prison. And Jesus says, and he will not get out of there until he pays every last penny. There's a lot we could talk about in this, but I just want to, I just want to help you get a grasp of how much this guy owed. He owed 10,000 pounds, roughly the equivalent of $10 million, okay? Now, to a servant, what is $10 million? I mean, I don't know what $10 million is to you, but to me, it's like a bit of an unfathomable amount, right? Right? And how long would it take him to pay that back? He says, please be patient with me and I will pay all. How ridiculous is that, right? If you assume minimum wage, $15 an hour, and an eight-hour day, working five days a week for 50 days, 50 weeks a year, just assume, you're up, 
rough assumptions, that's $30,000 a year. Let's assume it's tax-free, okay? It's tax-free, 30K a year, $10 million divided by 30K, that'll only take him 333.3 years to pay. That's basically like four lifetimes, assuming an 82-year life. I.e., it's impossible. I.e., it would take him, what's the word that you and I would use? How long will it take him to pay this back? Forever, right? Forever, right? Very similar to what Jesus was saying to his disciples, to be infinitely forgiving. Why? Why to be infinitely forgiving? What did, the, what did the master say to the servant? Why was he angry with him? When he pulled him into his office the second time, what did he say to him? He said to him, shouldn't you have had mercy on others just as I had mercy on you? But today, I beg you, don't look at the top part. Just look at this for now. For now. Just look at this. The power is on this side of the abs. As I had mercy on you. If we use our seesaw model, have mercy on others. Don't look at this right now. Look at this. As I had mercy on you. <coughs> I forgive because I am paying it back, not because I'm paying it forward. Do you know the difference? People often say these and they, they get them backwards. They say, yeah, yeah, oh, thanks, Father John, you know, I'm just paying it forward. What they really mean to say is, I'm just paying you back. Like if I did them a favor in the, in the past, and they did me an unsolicited favor, and they say, I'm just paying it forward, that's actually backwards. Paying it forward is when you do favors for people knowing you don't, they don't owe you nothing, but knowing that one day I'm going to need you to, right? Like paying it forward is where someone doesn't owe you anything, but you do something for them. You initiate. That's paying it forward. Paying it back is somebody did something for you, and now you have the opportunity, so you're paying it back. Somebody did you a favor in the past, now you're paying it back. When I forgive, I'm paying it back. I'm not paying it forward. I'm returning the favor. I'm not, I'm not initiating my own. Let's do a little comparison table here between the unforgiving servant, as he's called in the story, and each one of us. Why was the servant in trouble? Because he was in debt. Right? Why am I in trouble? Because I bought myself debt by my choices. Says scripture. Right? Says God to Adam and Eve, if you eat from this tree, by death you will die. I've initiated the process of death for myself. How big is the debt? Here it's $10 million. Here it's the, the debt of a life. My choice, the cost of my debt is a life. Maybe somebody could earn $10 million, but what could you ever do to earn a life? How did the, how did the, the servant accumulate so much debt? By bad decisions. How did I accumulate death? How did I earn for myself death, says the liturgy of St. Gregory? By my own choices. I was slothful towards your commandments, says the liturgy of St. Gregory. How much was the servant forgiven? All the ten million dollars, down to the last penny. How much have I been forgiven? All of my sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. How much did it cost? Well, it cost the king or the master ten million dollars. 
right? How much did it cost God? The Holy Trinity, the entire life of Christ. His Annunciation, His birth, like think about it, He's born into a stinky, stanky manger with animals, living a poor life, becoming an orphan at a young age, the son of a widow, etc., etc. Entered into, into Jerusalem, was hailed at one moment, was nailed at the next. Suffered, ridiculed, spat upon on the cross. I have had, I have been given a lot. So when we say forgive, just as I have been forgiven, what does that look like? What is the character of God's forgiveness? Like when God says, I forgive you, what does that mean? Does that mean like I forgive you today, but in my bipolar personality tomorrow, I'm going to hold it against you? Does that mean like I forgive you uh, today, but you need to learn a lesson. So, you know, I forgive you. I'm not holding it against you morally, but you still have to pay what you owe. Like, how does that, how does that play out? Let's look at a, just a couple of verses about God's forgiveness just to get our heads wrapped around the character, the nature the, of, of God's forgiveness. He says in the Psalms, as far as is the east from as is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God has taken it off your record. It can't be found as far as east is from the west. He says also in the Psalms, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. He's taken it off of your account. That line item has been has been wiped out. That line item has like white out on it. You know? He's decided, he's made an active decision not to remember it. Right? What do we mean like by white out? That's the, the verb tense that's used in scripture for that is blotted out. That means that it would be there, or it is there, but it is no longer visible. It is it has it is no longer of any consequence. It is no longer accessible. In fact, in other verses, but to limit the number of verses I put, it says he has wiped it out of their consciences. I am even I am he who blots out your transgressions. I will not remember your sins. It's an it's an active verb. He chooses continually not to remember my sins. Their sins I will remember no more. He does not retain his anger forever. This is the character of, 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 of God's forgiveness. And the verse we just read, he cleanses us from all sin. His forgiveness is complete. Always is complete. C.S. Lewis makes a really good distinction between forgiveness and excusing. And he says they're probably actually, if we think about it hard enough, they're probably actually opposites. When you forgive somebody, you say, look, you did a very evil thing, but I forgive you. Like, that's fine. And I forgive you completely, wipe it out totally, it's blotted out forever, you know, and all of that. When you excuse somebody, you say, well, it's not so bad. Well, uh, maybe you didn't know. Well, what, what we're doing in forgiveness, we're accepting the wholeness of the offense, accepting it, and dismissing it. When we excuse somebody, we lessen the offense. And we don't necessarily 
remove it. We're just lessening it instead of it being $10 million. Oh, well, you really didn't know. And a couple of those bad investments you made, you had no way of telling and so on. So if you remove this and remove that, oh, you only owe $2 million. That's excusing. It's not that one is wrong and one is right, because Jesus excuses and forgives. On the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, and he gives them an excuse, for they know not what they do. Excusing is not wrong. Stopping at excusing is. If he had excused them, they, they, did, they did wrong, but they did it out of ignorance, then they're still in the wrong. Not, not as bad of a wrong as if they did it knowingly and willingly. God takes it to the very end. If he excuses, if you want to excuse people, that's fine. Make sure that you forgive them, just as God does as well. How much have I been loved? Like, that's the question, right? Love one another as I have loved you. That's the question we started with. How much have I been loved? Well, it, it leads directly to the question of how much have I been forgiven? You see, how much I've been loved, I've been loved at least enough to have for, been forgiven. Like if I've been loved this, if I've been forgiven this much, then I must have been loved this much. Well, how do I know how much I've been forgiven? Well, it depends on how big my offense was. So actually, having a clear idea of the degree of my offense of which I have been forgiven actually sets limits or, or, or delineates how much I've been loved. I know God loves me infinitely, but infinite, like infinity and zero are very similar in that neither of them exist in the real world, in math, sorry, in the mathematical real world. Both of them are mathematical concepts that without them, all of mathematics would fail. Right? I'm not a mathematician, but when I heard this and I read this and Learn this as well. I was like, oh my God, this is God. God, this is this is God. The, un, the unreachable, the unprovable entity upon which the entirety of science stands is actually infinity and zero. We can approach them, but we never actually, we never actually witness them with our own two eyes. So God loves me infinitely, but that's like saying, like, that that doesn't that doesn't mean anything. I don't know what that is. Well, how can I, how can I get a tangible grasp of that? Well, he loved me at least enough to forgive me. Forgive me? Well, forgive me of what? So then, you're going to tell me, well, but John, staring my sins square in the face is not exactly the most pleasant thing in the world. It doesn't really inspire me. It actually is just kind of depressing. And I agree with you. I mean, if I were to sit and enumerate all of my failures, I would most likely not have the confidence to stand here before you today. So it's not so much, it's not so much wallowing in all of my brokenness. It's not so much looking inwards and only at myself. It's looking at the fullness of my sin on the backdrop of God's love. In the church upstairs, you know, we use icons when we pray. The goal of the icons is to help us, one of the reasons we have them is they, they help us to center our prayers. We're all a little bit distractible, we're all a little bit ADHD, and we kind of go all over the place. 
And when the, when the icons grab our attention, they force us to look in one direction as opposed to looking in multiple directions. But we don't pray to the icons, we pray through the icons. I'm not praying to the, the, the picture in front of me, I'm praying through it. God wants you and I to use all of our sins, all of our fallenness, all of our, our, our poor choices and our bad decisions, all of the hurt I've caused other people, the damage I've done to others, to put that before my face. But you know, here everybody do this. We've done this experiment before, but in case you haven't done it, everybody lift your hand up and put it in front of you the way I'm, I'm doing mine. Now, you can either look at the details of one of your fingernails, and when you do that, your hand will be in clear focus and everything else will be kind of fuzzy. Or you can look as far as you can. Look as far as you can behind your hand. You know, so there's a bunch of lovely women sitting right in front of me. I'm looking at you through my hand. <laughs> so my hand is there, but I can still see you. You know, and because of our bifocal vision, my hand seems kind of blurry, but you are in focus. Do that with your repentance. Keep your eyes fixed on God. Keep your eyes fixed on His kindness, on His glory, on His on his generosity. Keep your eyes fixed on what's on the other side of the as. Forgive as you have been forgiven. The one who forgives, the one who says to me, I have moved your sins as far as is the east from the west. I have blotted them out. I have, I have drowned them to the bottom of the sea. Fix your eyes on him. And all of that becomes more real. It becomes more real when I can compare it to something else in the foreground. That's my sins. Specifically, specifically what they are. And then you find somebody like St. Paul says, if I boast, if I'm going to brag, I'm going to brag about one thing. I'm going to brag about what God has done with me. I'm going to tell you that I wrecked havoc on the church. I'm going to tell you that I was a murderer. I'm going to tell you that I tore people away from their families. I'm going to tell you that I did all of those things. And look what God has done. He can do the same with you. All glory be to him. So St. Paul gladly boasts in his infirmities as in his weakness. We ought to do the same. It's not about what you have to do. It's about what's been done for you. The power is on the other side. 